this point if all the kids and those who are going to be caring for the kids this uh, this week, you can go on next door and uh, do the things that are uh, set for you to do. Have a good time. We're going to get together again after this and, and have lunch together next door. So that's kind of unusual, that's unfortunate, but once in a while there's going to be loud banging if it's being recorded. That's because there's a fan that ventilates the room we're in, and the air flapper thing just is made of aluminum and smacks something sometimes. So if you're wondering what that is, there's wind in the alley apparently. Um, could I have all the like back row people come on up? We don't have a mic, and I don't... I like not using a mic, but that requires that you guys have to accommodate me and come closer so I can be heard. I hope it's not, I hope people aren't offended or like seriously like, you know, uh, inconvenienced by me asking them to come up. If you are, then just pray that the Lord will change my heart. <laughs> come on up. And we get closer. Because I think it's more familial and it's more fellowship like, maybe a little more friends. We're all on the same page here. We're all sitting close together and we're together. So, thank you. I'm going to pray one more time. Lord, let your will be done here this morning. I pray that you would, as Phil said, uh, let your words speak through me this morning. I just release any kind of plans of my own and just say, Lord, let your will be done. The purpose of this time this morning is to edify and to exhort and to build up one another. And uh, teaching is one of the expressions of that. So Lord, let your word be taught here this morning uh, that that time of a relationship with you, it's not just an intellectual thing, but it's it, it helps or it like strengthens or it is another piece of our relationship with you, that those two things would work together, that we would be active and effective ministers of your truth and your gospel in the world that you've put us in. Let your will be done. Thank you for the fellowship of believers, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning is an unusual Sunday morning. Sunday mornings in general at Church of the Word are unusual, and that's intentional. We don't want us... Well, whatever the Lord leads, but our heart right now is to not settle into a completely always the same Sunday morning cardboard cutout kind of a thing. Instead, we're trying to be intentional to keep it like led by the Spirit, and that requires sometimes that we shake each other up a little bit. So there was no singing, that's unusual. Typically, there's some uh, worship and praise, and usually there is. I think there's definitely a need for that. And, uh, and then as Phil said, next Sunday, we're not even going to be here. And that is, again, to keep us, like, flexible and to keep us uh, focusing on where we're living. Because that's what Church of the Lord really um, has been recognized. Like, we recognize the Lord has, like, really put that on our hearts, to be focused on where we live. This is simply to, like, strengthen each other and help us be up there in our world, in our workplace, in our school, in our job, whatever. The gym, grocery store. That's really what we're about. We're ministers, we're disciples, we're missionaries. So so next Sunday, do that. Ask the Lord. Yeah. So this morning we are teaching from Mark chapter 3. I'm going to be picking it up at 
verse 7 and going to verse 19. I'll give you a second to find that in your Bibles. I'm reading from the, uh, the Good News Bible, so it might be a little different flavor than yours, but hopefully the same for comes. So picking up at verse 7, Jesus and his disciples went away to Lake Galilee, and a large crowd followed them. They had come from Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem, from the territory of Edomia, from the territory of the east of the Jordan, and from the region around the cities of Tyre and Sidon. All these people came to Jesus because they had heard of the things he was doing. The crowd was so large that Jesus told his disciples to get a boat ready for him so that the people would not crush him. He had healed many people, and all those who were ill kept pushing their way to him in order to touch him. And whenever the people who had evil spirits in them saw him, they would fall down before him and scream, You are the Son of God. Jesus sternly ordered the evil spirits not to tell anyone who he was. Then Jesus went up a hill and called to himself the men he wanted. They came to him, and he chose twelve, whom he named apostles. I have chosen you to be with me, he told them. I will also send you out to preach, and you will have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he chose. Simon, Jesus gave him the name Peter. James and his brother John, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus gave them the name Boangeries, which means men of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Patriot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. So, I kind of found that a little dry when I first was asked by Matt to talk about that. I was like, okay, what am I supposed to, uh, you know, speak on that? But thank the Lord that there are scholars and teachers who uh, have done a lot of research on this, and there was some things to share. So I'm just going to, like, go through this chunk by chunk, share what I have. We're going to do communion together, and then we're going to have a feast together, which is kind of like, I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> it's good to be together. So verse 7 and 8, a large crowd followed him. They came from Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem, from the territory of Edomia, from the territories of the Jordan, and from Tyre and Sidon. Okay, so 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 what? Like, why is that in there? Why? What? What does that mean to us, right? Why list all these places? What's the point? Well, there are a couple points to uh, to share about that. The first one is that in Mark 1, verse 5, we read that people from the country of Judea and Jerusalem came to hear John's teaching. So this is showing us that John came, and he was significant. People came from these two places to hear him. Along comes Jesus, and he's even, like, far more significant. People come from these other places. And if you look at a map, it's like quite a bit larger geographically. So it, it lines up with John's teaching that after me comes one who was before me, who's greater than me, whose sandals I'm not even willing to untie. This is like another strengthening of that comment and that statement. So when you read that in that context, okay, I can understand why you can say that. A little more significantly, at least to me, was that looking again on a map, we see that they came from Galilee, Galilee is from the east, or no, no, from the west of the Sea of Galilee, which is where Jesus was. Judea and Jerusalem were from the south. Edomia is from the east. Tyre and Sidon are from the north. So that's a way of saying that, like, 
they came from like all of Israel came to him, like all of all points, you know, north, east, south, and west. Everybody was so impressed by what Jesus did and so taken by what Jesus did that they came from all over to hear him. And then, in line with that, the concept of coming from the four corners is um, the regions that that describes lines up with Israel of the Old Testament. So, that Old Testament Israel is coming to see Jesus. So, I don't know, I'm assuming that everybody has a certain amount of knowledge of like the Bible and Old Testament and New Testament. But Jesus is coming as the Messiah, as the King of Israel. The people don't recognize that. The demons do, as we read. They say, you're the Son of God. But the people don't necessarily. They're just coming because it's like, wow, this guy's amazing. Or, I don't have, like, there's no medical care in my place, but I hear that that's happening over there, so I'm going to go. They don't come because he's the King or the Messiah, but we, as the reader now, get to see that that is, in fact, what was happening. Israel of old, geographically, was coming to their king. That's like beautiful. And that's just like the Bible is full of that kind of stuff where like he reinforces the truths that he says. Like the Bible really is worthy of being given the credit that it's given as Christians. It's not just a book that's written by people. Like if you look deeper and the deeper you look, the more we realize it really does all tie together and it really does all say the same message, which is Jesus and the gospel, the good news. I just found that beautiful and humbling and in my earlier days it was very easy to just read over those words and think they don't mean anything and kind of find it silly that they would be there. But thank the Lord for His grace because there are scholars who can like look at this and show this beautiful picture. And then last tied in with these four cities or whatever it was, I think there were four uh, districts, we see that tied in with these Israel coming to Jesus, we see that Jesus takes his disciples and makes 12 disciples. And 12 is a significant number because as we also remember from the Old Testament, 12 tribes of Israel were like instituted or established by God. So we see here that all of Israel comes to Jesus, like as in the old day, and Jesus establishes 12 disciples. So it's again like a picture of a new covenant, a new thing, which will like perfect the old one, which was a shadow of the thing to come. This is the thing to come. This is the real deal. And this is what we as Christians recognize and celebrate and identify with today. Verse 8 and 9. He gets in a boat. This one is, to me, I recognize that he is responding to the needs of the people. Although he has this greater message, it's true, he also is responding to the people as they are coming to him. They need this and this and this. They need to be healed. They need to have things done for them. And he responds to them. He gets in the boat so that he has the ability to like not be crushed, but share, help, heal, teach, listen. 
The next one is kind of uh, like a good one because this is another one that I'm just going to share myself. Like I always found it weird that when the demons would call out, "You are the Son of God," Jesus would sternly warn them not to tell anyone who He was. I didn't completely understand why that would be. You know, if, to me, if anyone's going to say it, good enough. Just like get the message out there. I don't know why you would tell people tell anything not to say who you are. So hopefully some of you feel the same way, because the truth is that there's a very uh, logical and significant reason why Jesus did that. And it has to do with the fact that these are evil spirits. So evil spirits in the first century, like, were common. There were evil spirits doing this and that. We read about it, like the more you read through the Gospels, you recognize that they were doing all kinds of things. They just were. So in first century context, for an evil spirit to be claiming that it recognizes someone, that is an ominous thing. That's not a good thing. You don't want an evil spirit saying that you're anything, because it's an evil spirit. So right away, people don't trust you, don't believe in you. So that alone would be a reason for Jesus to say, you shut your mouth. You're not the one who describes me or tells the world who I am or what I'm doing. So that makes sense to me. And then the second one, and maybe more significant one is, these are evil spirits. Again, these are evil spirits. These spirits maybe are recognizing that he's the son of God, but they don't have any sense of I'm excited that you're here. I'm a partner with you. They are like against him. They are the ones he came to wipe out and to destroy. So they don't have any place in Jesus' ministry. Therefore, they don't have any license to describe who he is. It's going to be the things that he does. It's going to be the message that he speaks. It's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit and the word of the Father. These are the things that are going to tell people, you are the Son of God. It's not going to be the spirits. So they are shut up. Next we come to verse 13. Then Jesus went up a hill and called to himself the men he wanted. They came to him. And he chose twelve apostles, who twelve disciples who he named apostles. So I'm reading these commentaries about how, about what all this means. And um in the days of Jesus' like work, the Sea of Galilee, the hill country around the Sea of Galilee, this was a place where folks went up who were like insurrectionists and like freedom fighters and rebels. In that day, the hill country around Judea or uh, the Sea of Galilee is where these guys went. Kind of like similar to what happened in 2001 with Afghanistan. Like Afghanistan was that crazy rocky hilly country that. You could disappear in. So, in Pakistan too, I think. So, if you're going to like plan things that you don't want people to know about, you go back into the hills there. And that's where you plan and you build your army and you like get ready to go back in and overthrow the government or do terror attacks on other parts of the world. In the same way, the Sea of Galilee, the hills around there, that's where those guys went to like form their rebellion groups and their revolutionary groups. So, this is just one person's like interpretation. I don't know if it's right or not, but I'm going to share that because I think that it gives us something to like recognize and that Jesus 
took them to the hill country. And what does he do? He establishes the twelve. He establishes these twelve disciples to become his apostles. That kind of is true. Like, he does establish the agents of his ministry, which is very spiritually countercultural, and even, like, Judaically, it's countercultural. He's setting up a new way. So it kind of is. Now, to me personally, that concept of Jesus establishes a revolutionary group reminds me of my grandmother. Eliza and I went to visit my grandmother a year ago, and we're Dutch. My grandmother, not Eliza, but my grandmother and I are family. And uh, my grandmother was a little girl in World War II in Holland. And um, it was really cool, because I'd never heard all this before, but I heard it that just like a year ago. It was amazing. She was... She has these memories of being a little girl in Nazi-occupied Holland. And there would be all these different people coming to the dinner. There would always be, like, a stranger in the house who was, like, welcome, and they were hiding him. They were, like, workers in the resistance movement. So they had they had guns in their barn hidden in the straw. They were always hiding, like, resistance workers and Jews. Like, that's a beautiful... Uh, heritage. Heritage, yeah. A gift to me. I'm so, like, proud. And, and I'm really, uh, I really appreciate that. So then, that kind of applies too for us as Christians. And I see it, especially with Church of the War, like as missional communities, there are these hubs that are like, we're working like counterculturally. We're working like revolutionary in the sense that the world out there and the way the world operates, we're not like that. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're peculiar and we're different. And we carry a germ that we want to infect in as many people as we can, which is the good news and the truth of the Lord. So we're kind of like that. So in the sense that some, some people make Jesus' message too, in my opinion, too social and too like, it's just about feeding the poor. It's just about all these social things. It was that, but they kind of downplay the spiritual side. But for us... It's, it is both, and like the spiritual side is so true. And as missional communities, and then as getting together on Sundays, we're like in a spiritual battle. We're like in a war with the world out there. The difference in World War II uh, resistance groups and us is we're not secretive. We're not afraid of being caught and found out, and the whole thing falls apart, because it never will, because we're on this side that's already won. But there are similarities, and I would encourage you to like meditate on that and focus on that and recognize that that is true. Like, we have this, a similar, like, germ of, like, resistance and, like, we're a part of something that's exciting. This is not just a rote thing that we perform a ritual of. Like, we're involved in a life that is different and exciting. It's something to live for. It's beautiful and it's, like, hard. It's, it's, it's the real thing. It's beautiful. So, I, just want to, I think that's, like, that's something I... I that was a real appeal to me with Church of the Lord, and I hope it is for you too. And I hope that you like embrace that and encourage that in your missional communities, and, and that we would live life together like a lot because we need one another, because we are in a battle with the world, the enemy of the world. It's not the world itself, but it's the powers and the rulers of the world. It's the enemy, it's, it's Satan, and the ones who are uh, his uh, workers, these evil spirits. We're at war against them, and we need one another. We need to be living together, confessing our sins to one another, encouraging one another. You can't just do that once or twice a week. It's not going to make you... You're going to be anemic. You're going to be very, like... You just need to be struggling through. There's seasons where you can do it more or less, but, like, let's continually be, like, 
aiming and like desiring to walk life out as a fellowship of like a family. We're disciples and missionaries and we're a family. It's beautiful. So I'm not done with verse 13. Jesus went up on a hill and called to himself the many warranted. This is the other side of it. Um, he went up into the hills of Galilee. That's the revolutionary side. There's also other texts say instead of hills, say mountain. He went up on the mountain and called those he wanted. So this is, um, this is significant. It's beautiful because either way you look at it, it carries significance. If he went up into the hills... He was forming a revolutionary group, which we have a, a heritage in. If he went up on the mountain, that is like a statement that is pregnant with symbolism and significance to the Old Testament as well, because several times people went up on the mountain and God established, for instance, God established Moses and Aaron. He went up on the mountain, he appointed them. And Moses went up on the mountain and appointed these 12 men to be... Uh, like overseers of the 12 tribes. I don't know if you remember that. I have it in here somewhere. If you want to know the text where that was, uh, I'll find it for you later. But So that concept of Jesus going up on the mountain is like very much looking back to the Old Testament. And in the same way that God established the children of Israel up on the mountain with Moses and, and Aaron, Jesus went up on the mountain and established these 12, but he called 12 to himself. So... I just love that. Like, either way you look at it, it is, like, significant, and it is true and beautiful. And I think the best way is to put both of them together, to recognize that there is a social aspect to what we're doing in the world, and there's also, like, this huge spiritual heritage that we are, like, we're a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. So, it's just very encouraging as we walk life out. We're a part of something bigger than, than we could ever recognize, and it just keeps opening up to us more and more as we live life. So verse 14, And he chose twelve, whom he named apostles. I have chosen you to be with me, he told them. I will also send you out to preach, and you will have authority to drive out demons. So he brings them to the mountain, he brings them to the hills, and what he does is, he says, I have chosen you to be with me, I will also send you out to preach, and you'll have authority to drive out demons. This is a, another thing that we can, like, a little gem that we can hold on to, and we can recognize, and we can meditate on, and pray that it, like, opens up more and more into our life, and into our, like, self, as like a flower does, because it's so... Uh, Significant Again, like when I, up until reading this now, I would have read, I have chosen you to be with me as the small part, and to preach and to drive out demons as the big part. Being with Jesus, cool. But like, those things are awesome. <laughs> but as I read these commentaries, like, the fact is the opposite. The big thing is, and the unique thing to these 12 guys is, you will be with me. So, like, imagine, like, 
Imagine that. It's, and that's the truth. And we know that of ourselves as Christians. Like, the biggest thing that we have as Christians is we are with Jesus. We have been invited into relationship with Jesus. That is the biggest part. From that flows the ability to teach and to heal the sick and to cast out demons. But those things are not the core gem that we can really like hold and like as a treasure in our lives. The biggest thing, the most beautiful thing, the thing that's going to like sustain us through life and make us effective as Christians is the fact that we were called to be with Jesus. It's important to remember that in uh, further on in the book of Mark, there's another guy who's going around casting out uh, demons in Jesus' name, and the disciples are like, we told them not to. And Jesus says, don't do that. Let them keep going. And then there's that man who had the uh, the legion in him. When he is healed, Jesus tells him to go back into the region of the Decapolis and to to preach the good news, tell them what's been done for you. So, doing doing the work is not unique to what Jesus established of the disciples there. The part that's unique, he didn't say to those other guys, is, you're with me. So that is like the real like gem. That is the unique thing. And that's what we as believers can really like hold on to and draw strength from. And I hope that that's true of us as we continue to grow, myself and, and all of us. And I wrote more. I don't know how much more I should say about that, but just that he's not like an ice. I guess it's significant. He's not an isolated prophet who's who's a solitary figure. He he invites twelve to like have community with him. We're gonna like walk the road together. So that's like important too. You know, we can't fall into the trap of getting isolated and being alone. Thank the Lord the way Church of the Word is like kind of written in our, into our DNA is a very much a relational concept. We need to protect that and, and like grow in that. And it's just a beautiful picture of yeah, the Lord like establishes that. It's community. It's I want you with me. And then tied with that again, this is a little more like dry and intellectual, but I think it's significant. The passage opens with all these people coming to him, so many that he needs to get in the boat. So what does he do? He establishes 12 people so where before it was just one. Now there's 13 folks. There's Jesus and the 12 who are going to like go out and preach. So he's practical. He understands. He gives us what we need. The people who need him, he establishes more folks who will like be with him for a time to watch and learn and like be disciples. And then I will send you out as apostles. You are sent out ones. You have a message. You have something to give. So... It's just another picture of Jesus. Like, who is this Jesus we're following and we identify with? This is a picture of him, you know? He spiritually gives us everything we need. He also practically gives the world what the world needs. Just to equip us as Christians to continue to be Christians, to know that. Then we are now at the point where it lists the four or the, the twelve. And uh, so the significance in this that I draw, that I feel like I should share, builds on what Matt shared last week. Last week, Matt shared how 
First, he calls the four fishermen, two brothers, or two sets of brothers, four fishermen. And then he calls a tax collector. And tax collectors were the bane of the life of fishermen because they skimmed off of their hard work. And not only um, legitimately, but they also take more. So fishermen did not like tax collectors, understandably. So what does Jesus do? He establishes these twelve where there are both fishermen and tax collectors. And then add to that, you have a couple of guys I didn't get a whole lot of significance from. But a couple I did. Simon the Zealot, Simon the Patriot, and Judas Iscariot. Now, this again, Simon the Zealot is, uh, he was a part of this, like, purest Judaic group, probably. That's probably what it means to say the Zealot. So again, to have a tax collector partnering up with a zealot was like, Kind of risky and kind of like not easy for Jesus, I would imagine, but it shows a picture of us. Like we're very different, we're a very diverse group of folks, but we serve the same Lord. To such a degree that Judas Iscariot, the term Iscariot could mean a couple of things. It could mean, according to these scholars, a person from Curia, which is a little less wow, but a, that would mean he's not fully Jewish. So that's that's neat. But it could also mean Sikari. Iscariot Sikari, which is the dagger men. The dagger men. These were the assassins of the revolutionary group. So they don't know that Judas was one. They know that there was Sikari who were assassins, like the most fanatical, the most like, you know, bloodthirsty of the revolutionary group. And Iscariot could mean that Judas might have been of those guys. So like, what a crazy group of folks. So, like, not of the same. So that's beautiful, and that's important for us to recognize, too. Whether or not Judas was an assassin, I don't know. But it's published in those concordances, so I think it's worth sharing. It could be. I think that's about all I have to share this morning. I didn't, uh, I have, I've had a crazy uh, last couple of weeks. I, probably most of you have, too, these, this cold that just doesn't go away. And then if you have an active family and you are involved in your in your church life, it means you're going to be out doing stuff a lot, and that's good. And you're going to be hosting stuff a lot, and that's good. It means that you might not um, have as much to teach on. So. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get a, a little table like this? Could uh, Aaron, would you write it back? Would you mind if you have one as well? We're going to partake in communion. I've got a couple things I'll share about that. But, uh...
and uh, communion. He, he established this. This is what you do. So I want to be faithful. So pray, uh, pray with me as I... Lord, uh, we're coming together now to celebrate communion as you uh, instituted for us. And I just pray that you would um, quicken our hearts. I'm going to like share what I have, Lord, but I pray that yeah, uh, you would let your will be done. We just want to celebrate you. We want to be faithful to you. We want to walk in your steps. We just want to like know you and share you in your life. So, Communion is a beautiful gift of that and an expression of that and a remembrance of that and identification of that. So let's will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. I feel like I should read 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 25, the, one of the several significant texts on, on communion. Paul is talking to the, first, to the church, it's his first letter to the Corinthians, and they were... They had their warts and their hardships. They would get together, and the ones who were hungry would show up first and like eat all the bread, so that folks who showed up later would have nothing, and they would drink all the grape juice. So he's like, "You guys, you guys really gotta stop a couple things here." For I received from the Lord. So I'm, re- I'm reading First uh, Corinthians eleven twenty-three to twenty-five. So, for I received from the Lord the teaching that I passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took a piece of bread, gave thanks to God, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in memory of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, This is the cup of God's new covenant, sealed with my blood. Whenever you drink it, do so in memory of me. So, yeah. If this, if that's not your reality... Don't partake in communion. Just continue to hang out. Sit. And uh, communion is for folks who are recognizing this and identifying with this and are taking this on, taking this in as a reminder of what Christ did for us. A couple things to consider. In our life as disciples, we're given the grace to walk this walk. It's only by grace that we can walk our walk as Christians. And communion is one of these expressions of grace. Think about this. Grace, grace strengthens my soul by faith when I meditate on Scripture. This is a way that we are like equipped to be Christians, meditating on Scripture. Grace comes to us when we meditate on Scripture. Grace strengthens my soul by faith when I see saints love each other sacrificially by the power of Christ. When we see folks loving one another, that strengthens us and, and encourages us and quickens us to continue the walk and the work. It encourages us. Scripture reading encourages us, reminds us. Grace strengthens my soul by faith when I see... Oh, I already said that one. Saints love each other sacrificially by the power of Christ. Grace strengthens my soul by faith when I see the heavens declaring the glory of God. How true is that, right? There's so many little places you can go around here. Or if you go on vacation somewhere else where you are just like either quietly or like very significantly blown away by the fact that like this is an amazing God we serve. Like his creation is just amazing and beautiful and it just reminds us of the truth and gives us strength and like humility to continue to walk in it. Grace strengthens my soul by faith when I fulfill my ministry with God's help. 
there's a sense, like, like a good day of work, like working a hard day of work, and you come home, you've worked well, you've worked hard, it feels good. In the same way as Christians, when we are ministering, when we are doing the works that God has for us to do, it feels good. It continues to like flame the fire of what we're doing. Grace strengthens my soul by faith when fellow Christians pray for me. That is so true and so important. These DNA groups are like a big avenue for that to continue. Let's pray for one another, encourage one another, build each other up, as well as potluck and prayer, and as well as like any time, in the mornings, in the evenings, like let's just get together and pray for one another. Grace strengthens my soul by faith when a brother or sister exhorts me, or admonishes me, or hears my confession of sin and comforts me. Kind of builds on the other one. It's so good for us, and it's grace. What does exhort mean? Exhort means strong encouragement, or to urge someone to do something. So when you're exhorted, someone is like really like urgently spoken to you. That's exhorted. That's good. That's great. It can be a little bit abrasive or maybe hard to receive, but allow that to be there. Uh, yeah. And then this one is where it applies to, to communion and fresh grace. Grace strengthens my soul by faith when I remember Jesus in the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup and I feast on his risen life. So that, this then this morning is like an expression of that. It's the grace that by faith we receive and gives us the strength to continue our walk. So like, meditate on the scripture. If you need to reread it, it's 1 Corinthians 11, 23-25 and um, and this thing. I hope it was helpful. I found it helpful. It's from a, a blog called Desiring God. It's a really good blog, I find. Um, I'm going to read one last scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. The cup we use in the Lord's Supper, and for which we give thanks to God, when we drink from it, we are sharing in the blood of Christ. And the bread we break, when we break it, we're sharing the body of Christ. So that if that's true of you, if that's your reality, then come on up. Um, that's it. Take this bread and juice this morning. Be strengthened again by grace through faith. When we feast together, then we'll feast together. Yeah, because of his life. Yes. I got a talk. Just because it's in the heart. Yes. If you want to just wash your hands before you we'll do. For the... You wipe down the table and you eat for this. There's a, this is a moist pot that has a touch in it. It's true though, like, yeah, you guys. It's significant that Jesus broke the bread, uh, Judas did not break the bread, Judas' is betrayer, Peter and John, they didn't break the bread. It's Jesus who broke the bread. A Roman soldier didn't run into the room and break the bread. Jesus broke the bread. And in his, he gave up his body. He is the one who allowed himself to be broken for us. And that is another thing that we can like hold on to. Jesus did this. It wasn't done to him. He allowed it to happen. So... Typically, uh, some nice music would be playing right now. <laughs> We're just going to come on up and have this uh, 
After this, there's uh, food next door. We're going to have a big lunch together. We're going to eat together. It's kind of like an overflow of communion. We, we sit as brothers and sisters, and the reason why we're eating together is because of what Christ did. 